Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Well, hello, friends. I hope this podcast episode finds you safe and healthy. I also want to thank you for the wonderful response I've received uh, regarding my last COVID-19 special episode that I posted last month. And I, I was really could tell that that particular episode resonated with many of you. And I wanted to build off of that past COVID-19 special episode just a bit uh, with my next guest uh, by talking about leadership in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis. My guest today is Rich Harwood. Now, Rich is the president and founder of the Harwood Institute. He is also an author, a speaker, and an innovator. The Harwood Institute is dedicated to bringing together people on the front lines in order to create lasting change in communities, specifically through being a force for good. Now, I'm going to be talking to Rich about what he's been observing throughout the country when it comes to admirable examples of solid leadership, especially during this time. Enjoy today's show. Well, Rich, thanks so much for being on the show today. He's calling in from the D.C. area, and I thought I wanted to um, build off my last special episode with the COVID-19 uh, crisis and, and really talk a little bit more about what's going on now, because as I'm airing this episode, uh, most states around the country are slowly reopening. Uh, people are going back to work. Again, it's slow, but people are starting to you know, get back to whatever a new normal is. And so I thought I'd ask you, because you travel around the country, and I'm sure that travel's been cut back a little bit because of COVID-19 but you have a lot of networking opportunities. You talk to a lot of people around the country. What are you seeing both in your neck of the woods, so to speak, but as well as across the country, specifically of how people and nonprofit organizations are responding to this COVID-19 crisis? Well, I think the, the virus has, has put into stark relief two realities uh, that are really important in the country both of which have been, um, on the one hand, uh, a disruption uh, to, to business as usual. In one way, a negative disruption, and another way, a positive disruption. Um, on the challenging side, I think what this has has brought to life for so many of us um, are the deep disparities and challenges that exist um, in our country, in our communities. That existed, Rob, as you know, well before the pandemic hit. Mental health challenges, disparities in access to health care, um, challenges about people um, finding the drug treatment they need, disparities in education. You know, we've got kids now who no longer are going to public schools who need to learn online, some of whom have uh, no access to the Internet. If they do have access to the Internet, they may not have a, a laptop or computer um, to use. So, those disparities, I think, are hitting communities very hard, and nonprofits and other groups are having challenges in responding to them. So that's part one. Part two is a more hopeful um, disruption, and that is that we're seeing, I think, the innate capacities and the can-do spirit of Americans um, come forward in a way that 
I was talking about before the pandemic um, on my book tour saying we have so many innate capacities that we're not tapping in our country, that we're leaving on the table, so to speak, that we need to marshal and put against the challenges that we face in our communities. So the good news that we're seeing is let's take education, um, museums and cultural institutions and other groups who all of a sudden are producing lesson plans online for kids and in other ways uh, that are supporting the education process in our communities. C- parents and others in communities coming together and forming ad hoc networks to support children to make sure they're not only learning, but they have activities to do when they're not um, doing their schoolwork. Uh, networks of people coming together. I suspect you may have seen this. You may see this in Utah as well, where we're making sure that senior citizens who are shut in by themselves have access um, to their drug prescriptions um, and groceries, and that we're calling them day in and day out to make sure that they don't feel isolated and alone through this pandemic. In those ways, I think the disruption has been enormously positive for the country, and I think bodes well for our future if we uh, if we don't revert back to where we were before. You know, I really like you saying that because I um, uh, I think there have been so many difficult things that we've seen, so many challenges, and so much even division uh, as people respond to this in different ways. I'm really glad to hear that. And I thought maybe you know because you spend so much time traveling on the country, although I'm sure that was um, held back a bit during the COVID-19 crisis, you do a lot of networking. I'm sure you've done a lot of Zoom calls with people all over the country. Maybe you could highlight a powerful story or two of what you consider to be these great examples of leaders leading well and making a real positive impact, especially during this time? Well, you know, it's interesting. We were, before the pandemic, doing work in eastern Kentucky in a community that was wracked by an opioid crisis where kids felt abandoned, even though they were going to Blue Ribbon schools, where the religious community was sowing division in the community, where people were divided by race, by income, by geography. And in the two years that we had worked with that community, they had made more progress than I've seen in my 30 years of doing this work. That's That was part A. That's sort of the good news that, that was happening before the pandemic hit. After the pandemic hit, this community that had been divided for so long but had been starting to make progress, all of a sudden decided to come together in a collective way to begin to address uh, the issues of uh, related to the pandemic. And there's one leader in particular, a woman named Jan Algeyer, who's head of the Greater Clark Foundation um, there in Winchester, which is in Clark County, uh, right outside Lexington, Kentucky. She and the public health agency started to convene leaders. And all of a sudden, 50, 60, 70 leaders, Rob, started to come together, not once, not twice, not three times, but twice a week since March, and they're still doing it, and the group is growing, and this group is beginning to pull together and say, you know what, we have mental health needs in our communities, how are we going to work in shared ways to ensure that no one falls through the cracks, and not only that, but that they get a real shot at the American dream that can fulfill their God-given potential. How are we going to, what are we going to do when the school closed for spring break, and so they weren't even providing the meals that they had figured out how to provide when the school um, was uh, was no longer open, but kids were learning at home. And so all of a sudden, all of these groups came together 
in Winchester and Clark County to provide meals during that spring break time um, in lieu of the school, uh, in lieu of what the school was doing. And one of the things that I've been really impressed by with Jen, and I was just talking to her actually yes, yesterday, um, is the way in which she's exercised leadership. She has stepped forward and stepped into the breach. She has done it in a way where she has said, let's figure out what really matters to the community, not simply what we as organizations want to do. Let's figure out how we can work together in common ways to marshal our collective resources, and let's stop the competition, the siloed and fragmented action that we're used to doing. And let's begin to learn lessons from this so that we can actually build a stronger, in a sense, ecosystem in our community so that we can create systemic change moving forward. And Jen has been persistent. She's been diligent. She's listened incredibly well. Um, and I think she has been generous in spirit in saying this isn't about the Greater Clark Foundation. This is about how our community can demonstrate that we have the innate capacities and the public will and the wisdom and knowledge to come together and work together in new ways, building, this is important, building on what we just did over the last two years before this that created a stronger foundation for us to work together. It's a really remarkable story um, in a rural area in America that I think many people on the coast wouldn't believe is possible. You know, I, thank you for sharing that. What a powerful story of leadership. And as you think back, I mean, I know there's this is kind of real time, right? So things are still moving forward and coming together. But as you look back over the improvements that you've seen and just the sense of collaboration that is happening, is it because this one person has stepped up and just exercised leadership or was it a combination of things? But if you were to kind of do an anatomy of how this changed from where it was before, before you got there and now where it is, what are some of the things that came together, do you think? Well, interestingly enough, the anatomy of this is actually on our website uh, that people can go to. We just released a report called One Step at a Time um, that actually traces this thing over two and a half years. And the remarkable thing about this story is that it is not dependent on one leader, though in this case, Jen is providing wonderful leadership in the community. But in the two or three years where we were working with this community before, it was people coming, you know, the folks you would least expect coming together in combinations one could never have imagined and producing change that was totally unpredictable. So let me just give you one example. Uh, this community, as I said before, was is racked, has been racked by the opioid crisis and meth crisis. And the public health agencies have been doing a good job. But when someone OD'd from opioids or meth, they would go to the emergency room. They would be treated and released. No one would follow up necessarily with them. They wouldn't necessarily get into drug treatment. And so we weren't really changing anything in the community. We were just maintaining the status quo. Two women who were going to a local church who went to a program that that church put on about drug addiction then found out about a conference happening in, I believe, Louisville that they went to. And they came home from this conference realizing that, and these are two women in recovery themselves, Rob, they came back realizing that what would really make a difference is if they could develop a team of people who were in recovery themselves, who were empathetic and understanding uh, to people who had just experienced a drug overdose. 
who those addicts would trust when these coaches would come into play. So they trained a, a cadre of coaches. Those coaches meet people at the emergency room. Um, and in doing so, what they've found is that these coaches now can get people into drug treatment. And what they're finding is not only are they getting into drug treatment, but they're building a social network around them to ensure that they complete the drug treatment. So these two women in recovery themselves created this program called Achieving Recovery Together. But it didn't stop there. These two women then created the storefront where people who were suffering from drug addiction or had, or had recovered, were in recovery, could come and learn financial literacy skills, job training skills, could build social networks together, could find mentors. And now all of a sudden they're helping people rebuild their lives. But the story didn't even stop there. The public health agencies and the hospitals who were responsible for this realized that these two women and their coaches had learned things that would be beneficial to physicians and clinicians and nurses and others in the, in the professional health field. And so now these women in recovery and their coaches are training doctors. They're training nurses. They're training public health agencies about how to engage with people who have overdosed and are suffering from drug addiction and how to help them back up on their feet. So to me, this is the story of people coming together and realizing they have innate capabilities that no one had seen in them before because they had been seen as the problem, not part of the solution, that they could marshal their collective resources in the community, that they could step forward and start to make a difference, that, that they could then offer benefits to professionally trained people who hadn't had the same experiences they did, and that they could res- they could create a story of renewal and redemption um, that created a spark of hope in the community that is now spreading in lots of other ways. And I could tell you one story after another after another from Clark County that are just like this. value our partners who make our world better and make giving a whole lot easier like our partner Karma Payments. Karma Payments could help increase donations to your nonprofit by as high as 600%. So maximize financial gifts with the power of Instant Karma, a new cashless giving device. They accept mobile pay and all major cards anytime, anywhere. Donors simply select their generous amount and tap, dip, or swipe for instant philanthropy. Securely managed contributions with top-notch technology, low-cost rates, and all-inclusive payment solutions. Instant Karma's handheld size, portable, weatherproof, and may be purchased least monthly or rented for one-time events. So support your cause, boost giving, and create a meaningful experience for donors this new decade. Learn how at karmapayments.com. Hey everybody, Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you are aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. We want to give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. 
In addition to some great content, you will see the latest uh, podcast shows that will be actually sent right to your inbox. And that way you'll never miss any of the great content on this show. The other thing I'll mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, do not hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Just do that through our website, my email, rob at ccofpc.org. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Now, this is the kind of thing that the media needs to focus more on. You know, these kinds of true real life stories that are truly transforming communities and so encouraging, too. Um, and so I encourage my listeners to check out the story on to Rich's uh, website. In fact, I'm going to give that in my show notes. You'll be able to see uh, when we post this online. Uh, you can click on that and check out more information about this. Sounds like it's such a powerful story. And maybe that could, that could lead to my next question. You know, as you think about leadership, um, that's what you spend your time on. This is what the podcast is all about that I've dedicated this podcast to is really what are those hallmark characteristics of solid leadership? So for you, what have you seen, not only in the for-profit organization, what are those hallmarks of characteristics of solid leadership that you would list as absolutely critical? Yeah, I think there are a couple of pieces to this. If I if I can if I can do this and and just Cutting on me if it's taking, if I take too long, please. Uh, the first part I, I think is about how we show up. You know, in my book, I start with a reflection, um, called Here I Am. And it's about Moses at the burning bush when God calls out. And Moses, as you know, and your listeners know, responds, you, who me? You calling me? Who am I? And God calls him and, and says, I have a special task for you. And Moses, you know, who stuttered and, and, and didn't have a lot of self-confidence, um, stood there and was filled with self-doubt, was believed that someone else was better able to fulfill this calling, believed that someone was else was better equipped. But he decided to step forward and make himself visible and to be seen and heard. And I think one of the things about leadership first and foremost, is whether or not we're willing to show up, whether or not we're willing to step forward, whether or not we're willing to make ourselves visible, whether or not we're willing to take the risk to do something that we may feel ill-equipped or unequipped to do. But somehow or another, we have some knowledge or can find the knowledge to do it. Um, doing Showing up, I think, is half half of this. The second part is, what do we do when we show up? And I think uh, this goes to the Institute's work uh, and so many other people's work. But in the Institute, what I would say is that if you want to be an effective leader, whether you're a nonprofit leader, a faith leader, we're working with faith institutions right now, or for-profit leaders across the board, we need to have an orientation or a posture that's turned outward toward the community, the people we serve, so many leaders today are really, and we've done millions of dollars of research on this and on the ground work. So many leaders profess to be turned outward toward their communities, but they're really turned inward toward themselves. They're turned inward toward their own organizations. They're turned inward toward their own metrics. They're turned inward toward claiming credit about things they didn't do or didn't do on their own and should be sharing credit with others. They're turned inward to just um, raising more money. While that's important, that alone isn't really why we're all in business, is it? And so I think we need to be turned outward toward our community. We need to focus and understand what really matters to people in their lives and what kinds of lives and communities they're trying to create and how we can be in service to that. 
I think we need to be turned outward so that we can understand the context of the communities in which we're operating so that the strategies and programs and initiatives that we develop are calibrated not to the communities we wish to exist, but to the communities as they are, because I believe we have to take people where they are and help them move forward. And I think we need leaders who don't believe that they alone, and we were just talking about Jen Algeyer in Kentucky, and you asked me if she was the single leader who did this. There is nothing that I have found that is worth noting and worth highlighting that a single leader created on their own. It is always people coming together in different combinations and creating things, co-creating things together, which doesn't mean we don't need people to lead us, but it always means that we can't go it alone on our own. We have to do it with others. The leaders that I have seen that are worth something, that are producing really good results, to something you said earlier, that are producing transformational results, have these qualities. And if I can just say one last thing, these leaders always have two qualities that I think we talk about in our society, but often do so in shallow ways, um, if we talk about it at all. The first is they have courage. They have the courage to put a stake in the ground about what they believe in, about who they are, about making themselves visible. They don't try to hide and obfuscate what they're doing. They're out there doing it in public so people can see it and they claim what they value and, and what they believe in. They also have humility because courage without humility just leads to hubris and arrogance. And the humility is so important because without humility, we can't listen to others. We can't see one another. And ultimately, we can't see that we're going to have to pick up that stake we put in the ground because conditions around us have changed or maybe we made a wrong judgment or maybe COVID-19 hits and we're called to do something else. We're going to have to pick up that stake and move it and we're going to have to do it in public and we're going to have to acknowledge that we moved it. That requires a healthy dose of humility. I think in our society, we have far too little humility in the leaders that we have. In post-COVID-19 world, um, what should nonprofit leaders be doing now? Like, is there any changes in leadership, maybe changing the way we do our fundraising? What should uh, nonprofits be doing now in light of a post-COVID-19 world? Well, I think the first thing we've got to do is make a fundamental choice that we don't want to revert back to where we were before, back to what people are calling normal. Because I think for many people in our communities, normal wasn't working all that well. And our politics and public life, in many respects, weren't working all that well. So I think we need to make a choice to get on a more hopeful, inclusive path to move forward. So that's, that's number one. I think that is a fundamental choice we need to make. When we make that choice, I think as leaders, then, I think within organizations, we need to be, because so many organizations have lost resources, they've lost staff, um, I think we need to make a really clear-eyed choices and decisions about what space do we really need to occupy in the community? What's the space we occupy? What's our contribution? What are the essential things we do? And in making those judgments, I think we also need to make the choice to stop doing certain things and let others do them, to triage certain things so that we can focus on those things that are most important. Third, I'd say we need to figure out who is it in the community we really need to be working with, because so many of the challenges that have emerged out of COVID-19 that existed before but are much clearer today than they were before. 
require us to work in unison, in networks, in partnerships with others in our community. And so we've got to figure out who do we really want to run with in our community? Who makes sense to partner with? And not everyone's going to make sense to partner with. Not everyone's going to be a good partner. And so what I would say to leaders in nonprofits and other organizations is be almost ruthless about who you choose to run with, but make sure you're forming the right partnership so that you can be as effective as possible. And then one other quick thing I would, I would just mention. I think I was just on a call the other day with some folks from a community where they were talking about all the quote-unquote needs in, in the community. And then someone, Rob, said, you know, it's interesting. I'm sure these needs exist, but have we listened to anyone in the community? Do we really know what their lived experiences are right now? Do we know what they're really challenged by? And so another part of leadership moving forward, which has always been important, but I think will be even more important moving forward, is how do we listen to people in our communities to ensure that we understand what matters to them, what their challenges are, what their lived experiences are, so that we can make better judgments about what essential things we need to do to help move our community forward. And so I would say those are essential. Last point, even though I said that was my last point, one last point. There was a negative narrative in America before the pandemic about our ability to believe in ourselves that we could come together and get things done. COVID-19 has demonstrated to us in many respects that we can actually come together as Americans and work together and get things done. I think we need to continue on that path. I think we also need to pay attention to the stories we tell each other, our shared, what I would call our shared narrative as Americans. And I think one of the most important things we can do moving forward is to help regenerate a can-do American spirit about who we are and who we seek to become, and that we actually do have the know-how and the wisdom and the capabilities to make good things happen. And so I would say that as much as we need to do all these other things, we also need to pay attention to the stories we're telling each other about ourselves and to one another so that we can have a greater sense of confidence, a greater sense of possibility, a greater sense of hope moving forward about the kind of society we can create together. I think you're I can tell you there's a lot of passion there, and I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, perhaps one last question today. You know, one of the positive benefits that you've already kind of mentioned uh, that I think could continue to come out of this COVID-19 experience is the need we all have for community. You know, and in your opinion, I'm, I'm guessing you've seen this a lot. Uh, why do you think we need community now more than ever? Well, I think there are a number of reasons. I think one is I don't think we as human beings were ever built to live alone on our own in isolation. We're social beings. But I think even more than that, you know, we've been now, many of us, um, isolated. We've been doing social distancing. Um, and I think that has led to increased depression. It's led to increased senses of social isolation. And I think more than anything, as people, we want a sense of belonging. We want to believe that we're part of something larger than ourselves. We want to believe that we can make a contribution um, to other people in our lives and in their lives. We want to believe that we have innate goodness in ourselves and that there's innate goodness in others. Um, I think we want, we are all in search, not just of fixing problems in our lives, but of trying to create a better life for ourselves, our families, and for our communities. And so that sense of belonging that you're talking about is so important because 
It enables us to feel these things. And also, Rob, what's important about it is that it calls us forward to be part of something to help co-create um, our communities together and therefore our country together. That's what the founding of this country was all about, was co-creating something better than what King George was trying to impose upon us. And I don't think we've lost that. I think we sometimes have misplaced it. And COVID-19, if, it, if there's a silver lining to it, is that it is reminding us of our can-do spirit. It is reminding us that we need each other. It is reminding us of the sense of belonging that's so important to us. And it's reminding us that we actually can co-create our futures together, notwithstanding the real differences that exist, notwithstanding that we b- believe in different political parties, notwithstanding uh, the fact that we have different faiths and, and, and the color of our skin is different and our heritage is, is often different, that amid those differences, we can transcend those and come together and create something better than what we have today. Uh, well, so this has been a fascinating discussion and thanks for all that you're doing. You know, for my listeners, how can people find out more about you and more about your organization? Uh, they can go to our website, which is uh, theharwoodinstitute.org. Um, we also do uh, a regular Facebook Live that uh, they can go to our Facebook page and, and click that on. They'll see a playlist. Um, there are lots of resources on our website and uh, and as well. Um, we hold public innovator labs where people can learn about many of the things that I've been talking about and how they can improve their local communities um, and make a real go of things. So, Well, sounds good. Well, I encourage you to check out Rich Hardwood's um, website and a lot of the stories that he mentioned. You can find out more information on this website. And thanks for all you're doing. I mean, you really are building into leaders, which then the result is you're transforming communities. So thanks for all you're doing and thanks for taking time to be on the show today. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.